praise to you for your grace shown us in Christ, that you would turn our eyes to see beautiful things in your word, that you would uh, tune our minds to, to understand what you have for us, what you've revealed to us about yourself and about your purposes and about your work in and through your people from your word. Prone to wander are our hearts and our minds And so would you fix us by the Holy Spirit to your word? Would you fix and chain my tongue that what we work through today would be from you and not merely my words? Speak to your church through your word, we pray this morning. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You can have a seat. Good morning, River City. We're continuing our summer series in the Psalms, so uh, grab your Bibles if you have them and open them to Psalm chapter 20. And as you're turning there, um, let me ask a question. In the United States, we seem to have a fascination with British royalty, the monarchy, the queen, the princes and the princesses. And even more than their public activity, it's their private lives that seem to fill the pages of our tabloid magazines, right? You're standing in line at the grocery store, and it's either a celebrity, like a movie star, or someone from the British royal family has done something embarrassing, and and there it is, right next to the Snickers and the soda, right? I mean, we talk so much, even here in this country, about royal weddings and babies. I think that part of it is is culturally, at this point in history, we as humans are not only just gossip junkies, which we are, but even more broadly, information junkies. And as it relates to the British royal family, at least part of what's intriguing is that they still have a queen as their head of state, Queen Elizabeth, currently still alive. I'm just saying, she's a little old, but hey, still kicking, right? In fact, they have a clear line of succession of kings and queens that that we don't have in the U.S. because we took care of that problem in 1776. Am I right? (laughs) These are my two favorite patriotic anti-British monarchy memes. In fact, we pride ourselves. It's a mark of pride for us that we are self-governed. That we are independent of kingly rule. Now, don't get me wrong. From a political standpoint, I'm not advocating this morning, excuse me, for a return to a human monarchy. I am not. Hashtag America. I'm not saying that. But sometimes our rugged individualism, which emphasizes self-reliance, I think sometimes it hinders us from grasping how God operates with his people. So we read passages in scripture that refer to God as king or David as king and we go, I think I have a concept of what that looks like, but, but not really. And maybe it's shaped sometimes a little too much like tabloid journalism about the British royal family. Because God is in fact a good and eternal king and we are his subjects. So when we read the history of God's people, as we will here in a second, looking at Psalm 20, 
We, we see that God was their king all throughout the Old Testament. But when things got challenging, the people grumbled. God being their king wasn't enough. They wanted a, a human king like everyone else. So God gave them a human king. He gave them Saul. And along with that, along with Saul, came all the problems of a human king. Foolish decisions, drift from what God had called them to as a people, the rise of pride and idolatry and trouble. But even in that, God was merciful. And so God gave them another imperfect but good king named David. One who, despite all of his flaws, was considered a man after God's own heart. And while David suffered some of the same failures and foolishness of every other human king, what we see in Psalm 20 is that David was also able to understand the difference between the means of his success and his victory, the difference between the means of those things and the maker who made those things possible. And so that's our focus today as we look at Psalm 20. See, we are all tempted to look at the challenges in front of us and lean heavy on our own skills and our own strategy. Or or maybe we look at our victories and our successes and we pat ourselves a little bit on the back, right? Look how awesome we are. Am I the only one who does that? I don't think so. See, in trial or in triumph, we tend to trust in the means rather than the maker. But Psalm 20 is is leading us as God's people that actually we are called to trust in God and pray that our hearts might align with our King, that it's in Him we find our protection and our prospering. So let's read our text this morning, Psalm chapter 20. I'll read it. You can read along. It should be on the screen as well. This is Psalm 20. To the choir master, a Psalm of David, verse 1. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and, may, and give you support from Zion. May he remember all of your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Bless you. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout with joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. This is God's word for us this morning. Now, the language of Psalm 20 is is different from the language of Psalm 19 that we looked at last week. Psalm 19 opens casting this grand picture of the beauty and majesty and glory of God and then closes very personally at the end. In light of who you are, O God, in light of all the things that are true of you that I'm so prone to forget, let my heart and my words align with what I'm being reminded of. Psalm 19. That you, O Lord, are my rock and my redeemer. Psalm 20 then shifts from me and my language to you and we. We read here, uh, Psalm 20, to the choir master, that 
Psalm 20 is a liturgical psalm. It's a, it's a song that the congregation would sing together. Psalm 20. So let me give you a picture of what that looks like. Let me set the stage. Here's the general picture of Psalm 20. David is the king of the nation and is likely preparing to go out to war against an enemy. So a, a win for David means prosperity for the people. A loss would be devastating. And so this picture here that's given us is David on his face in front of the tabernacle with the priests and Levites there leading the people in worship. And the people of the nations would, or the nation would be gathered around the outside, spread out all around the place in worship. And they are pleading with God on behalf of their king that God would hear the prayers of their king. That God would listen to what David is asking of God. That God would move on their behalf so that they might prosper. So that in the power of God, they might get victory through the hand of their King David. Does that make sense? David's consecrating himself to the Lord, pleading with God for victory. And the people are saying, God, listen to his prayers, please. That's the picture here. And Psalm 20 seems to be connected to 21. If, if Psalm 20 is a, is a pre-battle worship prayer, Psalm 21 seems to be the post-victory celebration. But I'm going to let Marty tackle that next week in Psalm 21. So I want to give you all this context going into Psalm 20. Because the people could trust in their own strength. Uh, look how many armies we've defeated, they could say. Look how prosperous we've become as a nation. Look how successful David has been, not only as a, as a military general, but the nation has expanded, even with his personal sins, even with his flaws. We have flourished as a people. Look how awesome we are. They could be tempted to trust in the strength of their armies or the sharpness of their swords, but they don't. They don't hear in Psalm 20. With David on his face before the Lord, the people join him in prayer, believing that God has given them David. He's given them this king, and they're asking God to answer David's prayers. Because if David's prayers are answered, then that means prosperity for them. And though we don't have a human king, we are citizens not only of a country, but citizens of God's kingdom. And with Christ as our king, what does it look like for us to trust God and not in our own means? What does it look like for us to pray along with Jesus, believing that the answer of Jesus' prayers, that his victory means flourishing for us? So we're going to look at this psalm in, in three sections and draw out what it means. First, the pleading with God that we see. Second, the prayers that King David is asking. And third, how God's people actually prosper and flourish. So first, pleading with God. Psalm 20 verses 1 through 5 open with seven may statements. These are requests. And the you here is aimed at David. The people are praying, may you God bless and hear David. Look at them. They're saying, may the Lord answer you David in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help. May he remember all of your offerings. May he grant you your heart's desires 
and your, fulfill your plans. May we shout for joy. May we shout for joy, they say, over your salvation. May the Lord fill all of your, all of the king's petitions. The people are pleading with God. And not just for their own individual interests. But, the, but for God to move on behalf of their king. They've couched all of their own hopes and desires in the prayers that David is asking. The Lord would answer his prayers. That the Lord would grant him his desires and fulfill his plans. There is reverence and submission and humility before their king. That he is ruling and reigning rightly by God over them. And they're praying for him. The content of their pleading is not that God would fulfill their plans, but that the Lord might answer David and fulfill his plans. Now, this seems foreign to us again because we don't have a king. Right? We don't. But there's something here our American experience might cause us to miss. That under God's sovereign reign... Under the care of a good and godly king, the flourishing of the king means the flourishing of the people. If God blesses him, it's good for us. And we just don't have that experience as readily. Because we have a human history full of selfish, prideful, foolish rulers and leaders who enrich themselves on the backs of their subjects. That is, I think, more often our experience in human history. But if we also look back where humble godliness is the mark of the leadership, people flourish. I'm, willing, I'm not a historian, but I'm willing to argue that. So if you're a history major, don't at me. Right? And so the people here plead with God to hear and to answer the prayers of the king. That's their pleading. Oh God, would you bless our king because his victory is our victory. And what are some of those prayers? That's our second point from these verses. These are the prayers of David. Now we don't have a list of his specific prayers. We're getting them kind of third person through what the people are pleading. But we can infer these are the things that David's praying for. That the Lord would be present. (laughs) That he would answer when trouble comes, that he would be their protection, his protection and his help and his support. He's asking that the Lord would acknowledge his offerings and his sacrifices. David would have brought offerings before the Lord, offerings for the forgiveness of sin, consecration. David has humbled himself in front of the nation and before God, acknowledging his sin and seeking God's mercy. And the people are asking God, Oh God, please be merciful to our king. See, being a good king and a brilliant military strategist, it's safe to guess that David had plans. He had sat with his generals and determined, Okay, where are the weak spots in this foreign army? Where can we have success? Where's the high ground? We have to know that, that David had those plans. And the nation had to know that. And we know not only from the Psalms, but also from books like Kings and Chronicles, which detail the life of David and the other kings of Israel, that David was zealous 
for the prosperity of the nation, that he greatly desired that God would fulfill all of his promises, that God would make his people flourish. And so David is likely praying to that end, that, that, that God would, through him, under his leadership as king, cause the people to prosper. And they would want those same things too. So it's good that the Lord would answer David's prayers because what is good for the king is good for the kingdom and that's good for the citizens of the kingdom. Now again, we, we don't have an earthly king, so, so where do we draw application then from these first two points? I, I pull out two. There might be more, but here's, here's two pieces of application as I've been studying this week that might be good for us. The first is this, that no matter the form of government in which we find ourselves, we are commanded to pray for those whom God has placed in leadership over us. 1 Timothy chapter 2, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, as, an, as a leader in the church, this is how you're to lead the church. First of all, Paul says, I urge that supplications... Prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul's encouragement to Timothy is this. Pray for those who sit in positions of authority. Now they might not fear or worship God as we do, but because we do, we pray for them. That's the instruction from Paul. What are the things that we pray? Well, we pray that that those in authority over us might be wise. That they might have hearts that are soft to the leading of the Holy Spirit. That they might lead with humility and godliness. Even when they don't. And so we we don't need to let go of moral clarity or biblical truth in praying for those in authority. Rather, we can pray that God might bring about biblical things to bear and align the hearts and the policies of our leaders with God and his word. We can pray to that end. That's one very practical application from this passage, to pray for those in authority over us. But I don't think that's the, the, the full heart here in Psalm 20, although we can draw from that. The other application is this. For you and me as followers of Jesus We have a dual citizenship. We are not just citizens of this geopolitical entity of a country, but we are also citizens of a spiritual, heavenly, eternal kingdom. And Jesus is our king. We don't get to vote in this kingdom because it is ruled by a perfect and holy King Jesus. If David was a fairly decent earthly king, which by all accounts, despite his failures, he was, Jesus is a better David and a better king. So pleading with God that he would answer the prayers of our good king is a good thing because what is good for the king is good for us. The parallel remains. Now there's lots of places where we see Jesus praying all throughout the Gospels. Katie read from John 17 this morning. I'd like to go there as well. You don't have to turn there. Just listen for a second. I would have had to read all of John 17, but I thought that might take a while, so we just put out a little section. Let me summarize some of what Jesus prays for. John 17 is is his last prayer, as Katie said, uh, his last prayer before marching to the cross. He's praying for his people, for his disciples, and for all those who would believe after him. 
P.S., that's you. And here's what Jesus prays for. Chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus prays that the Father would glorify the Son. Verse 11 in John 17, that the Father would keep all those who belong to him. That is us. He says, keep them in your name. Echoes a little bit of Psalm 20, verse 2, doesn't it? That the name of the God of Jacob would protect you. Verse 13 of John 17, that we might have the joy of Christ fulfilled in us. Verse 15, that we wouldn't be taken out of the world, but that we might be kept safe from the evil one. Verses 17 and 18, that we might be sanctified, that is purified, that is made holy and perfect, set apart, that we might be sanctified in the truth, Jesus says, of the word of God. Verses 20 and 21, that all those who believe in Jesus through his disciples and that all the disciples that follow might be made into one body, he says, one redeemed people, unified. 17 verse 23, Jesus continues that the church might be one so that, I love the, the because here, so that the world around will see that kind of unity and know that we belong to him. That the world might see how the church lives together and say, they must live under the rule of a different king. So our king prays. In fact, right now, our King Jesus is interceding on behalf of his people. Romans chapter 8 tells us that Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, is interceding for his people. And so it's good for us that these prayers of Jesus would come to pass. It's, it's for God's glory and for our good that the Father would fulfill the petitions and plans of Jesus We want our desires to line up with his desires because what is good for our good king is good for us as his people. So we as God's people plead with God on behalf of our king that God would answer his prayers for our good. Which leads to our third point from Psalm 20, verses 6 through 8. The prospering of God's people. Remember, this is a liturgical psalm. It's, it's equivalent to a prayer and worship service that the nation would hold before David and the armies would march into battle. The congregation is praying and singing, O Lord, hear us and hear the prayers of our King. His victory is our victory. His success is our success. Answer His prayers. Fulfill your promises in Him and in us. And then verse 6 opens with another voice where verses 1 through 5 sound a lot like the people praying. Verse 6, there's another voice that enters, likely the voice of the, of the worship leader or, or a priest, a sort of call and response, right? 1 through 5 is the people singing. Verses 6 through 8 is this voice of the priest, if you will, who comes forward amongst the people and says this, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. There's an affirmation, an agreement with the prayer that we all just prayed will be heard by God. That's what he's proclaiming there. God will hear us. There's a trust in God's faithfulness here. 
Verse 6 is full of faith, if you can see it. The armies might look strong, the task might be overwhelming, but I know, he says, that the Lord saves. I, I know it. I don't know about you, but I could use a little bit of more of that kind of knowing in my life, right? How often do we hit a bump or a pothole in our lives or maybe literally on the road? I don't know. But something we hit, maybe it's a wall, right? We run into a wall of tragedy. And while we do believe that God hears us, we believe that he's good, there's a part of us that holds back a little in reserve, like just in case, right? I'm pretty confident the Lord saves his anointed. I'm fairly certain the Lord saves his anointed. I'm 99% sure that the Lord saves his anointed. Oh, Lord, increase my faith. See, I'm challenged as I read Psalm 20 and I look out at the state of the world around me and the state of the church in the United States in general or more broadly in Western culture, and, and there's part of me that says, oh, man, what a mess. Right? And yet Psalm 20 kind of grabs my heart and grabs the sides of my face. I shouldn't do that. There's a microphone. It Psalm 20 grabs my face and kind of turns my head to look and see God is faithful. And his word is true and nothing and no one is stronger than him. I know he saves. I know he will answer, the psalmist says, verse 6. He will answer with his, the saving might of his right hand. I know. The imagery of the right hand is the image of strength and authority. It's the right hook of the boxer or, or the slash of the, right, of the right hand of a sword fighter. That's the image here is one of certainty and strength and authority. If God responds with his best shot, nothing Nothing can stand against that. I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer with the saving might of his right hand. Verses 7 and 8 are a, are a caution then that follow. Right? I know that the Lord will save. And then verses 7 and 8 are kind of set up in parallel. Some... The psalm says, some trust in chariots and horses. Some trust in the size and strength of their armies. But their end result is they collapse and fall. But we, he says, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And the result of trusting in the name of the Lord our God is that we rise. That we stand upright. See, there's this reminder that now shows up here at the end of the psalm of the temptation and the foolishness of trusting in our own strength. So what if our army is bigger or our horses are faster? So what if, if we're smarter or we have more ammunition? Our trust isn't in those things. We use the means that God gives us, but we don't trust in those means. Now, seeing as how most of you aren't arming yourselves for battle, I said most, some of you probably are. What does trusting in chariots and horses look like for you? Are you a planner? Do you have everything on your schedule with your 
calendar clearly color-coded? Do you have every project clearly mapped out and every penny allocated on paper before the paycheck clears? Maybe you're good with strategy and taking big picture things and boiling them down and putting them into practical next steps. Are you clever? Are you able to solve problems and find creative solutions to those problems? Are you creative and imaginative and able to work on the fly? Are you flexible and adaptable, which makes you a great teammate and a helpful contributor? Are you steady or, and measured and logical when other people seem haphazard? Or are you the spontaneous and somewhat haphazard one, but able to take steps and go places with a willingness to risk that others might not even be able to go? I don't know that I hit everyone in the room, but, but just let me say this. All of these means, and that's what these are, these are God-given means, the way he's shaped you and gifted you and formed you, all these can be really good things for you to accomplish the things that God puts in front of you and for you to use for his glory. All of them can be good. These are all gifts that God gives and the means he sanctifies and uses so that we might be productive and successful, care well for others, and work hard as unto the Lord. Means that God gives. These are, way that he, these are ways that he's made you and uses you to bless others, to bless the life of the church, to do the work of ministry, to disciple and shepherd and counsel and care for and build up and encourage. God uses all these things and many more as means to accomplish his ends. The advancement of the gospel of Jesus, the forward march of the kingdom of God, that God's glory might cover the earth as the waters cover the sea firmly believe that. But we are being beckoned in Psalm 20 to not trust in those means, but to trust in the God who gives them. We look to our maker, not saying, why did you make me this way? And not saying, thanks, I'll take it from here. Which are the approaches we tend to flip between. Instead, we let Psalm 20 be the words in our mouths, that some will trust in horses and their chariots, some will trust in their skills and ability and strength, but those are vain hopes for deliverance. We will trust in the name of the Lord our God. We will stand upright. In Him, not our horses, will we find true victory. As we close, verse 9 says this, it kind of closes this liturgy with a declaration, a benediction of sorts. O Lord, the psalm closes, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. See, the people believe that David is their called and anointed king. God made David king. So what's good for David is good for the kingdom and it's good for them as citizens of the kingdom. And I don't mean that they're purely thinking pragmatically. Like, well, what's the best way to prosperity, I guess, is we'll just take David's route. They're not pure pragmatists. They're holding on to the promises of God. God promised that David would reign as king, that, that someone from David's line would sit on the throne forever, and that from his rule and from his line would be flourishing and prosperity and glory forever. And they're holding to that. So from David would come a future glory and a future king. 
and a better kingdom that wasn't marred down by all the junk that came along with sin. So the prayer of God save the king is not just about David. It's a cry out to God that he would fulfill his promises. Not that God needs to be reminded as if he forgets, but for God's people and for us to be reminded this is what God has promised. He, he, he's, he's said what he will do and he has been faithful already. Oh God, fulfill your promise. Save the king. From at least the mid-1600s and more formalized from the mid-1700s on, those a part of the British Commonwealth would sing a national anthem of sorts called God Save the King. Or if there was a queen as the head monarch, as Queen Elizabeth is now, they change king to queen, change some of the pronouns, so it all fits, right? Sounds like this. God save our gracious queen. Long live our noble queen. God save the queen. Send her victorious, happy and glorious, long to reign over us. God save the queen. Now, our opinions of the royal family aside, there's a picture here that they understand that what's good for the queen is good for the people. Under David, Israel knew and believed that if if David followed the Lord, if he honored God, then God would bless David and that would mean blessing for them. That through trouble and war and strife, that God would show himself to be strong, that he would protect them and save them. Their hope was not in the king or the armies of the king, but in the one who sits enthroned over all earthly kings. The maker of horses and armies, the maker of heaven and earth. That is where ultimate hope resides. So as we gather together like this on Sundays, our liturgical song, if you will, is one where we gather around and proclaim our Father who is in heaven, that he would glorify the Son of God in our midst, that he would answer the prayers of Jesus, that he might protect us, that you, O God, might unify your church, that you might make your glory known to us through your church, that many others will see you at work among us, that many will come to the knowledge of who you are, that many might come to faith in you, and that the world would know that we belong to the King. See, we gather around Jesus, King Jesus, the Lord's anointed, who faithfully executes justice and mercy. We gather around our King Jesus, who is mighty to save by the strength of his own hand. We gather around our King Jesus, who's defeated our enemies and is our victorious King. As we meditate on this psalm and in preparation for Psalm 21, let this shape our minds and hearts a little this week. That you and I are tempted often to put our trust in the means rather than the maker of our means. But what might it look like to trust God more fully, more than our means, so that through them, but from Him, we might see the path forward towards flourishing and prospering as citizens of His kingdom and not our own? Would you pray with me? 
Father, we thank you that you are a faithful God who keeps his promises. Thank you that you rule as king from a place of righteousness and justice, that you are good and that you always do good. Forgive us for our tendency to trust in ourselves and our own strength, to put more weight in the means and neglect you, the maker of the means. We ask, Holy Spirit, you'd increase our faith, that we might see all your work is for our good, that the path to to life and flourishing is found in your word and your decrees. Would you lead us in your paths and help us to walk in your truth? King Jesus, align our hearts with yours that we would pray your prayers for your glory and for our joy. It's in you, Lord Jesus, in your name that we pray. Amen.